Welcome to This is for the CV, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit. This is a podcast by Anthony and Rebecca, two professors in communication and political science, chatting about politics, pop culture, and the things in between. This week, we are joined by Dr. Eric Bisey, a Marshall and Charlene Formby Regents Professor of Strategic Communication at Texas Tech University. He joins us to talk about media participation, how to have better political discourse, the primacy of visuals in presidential campaigns, and real leadership versus visuals of dominance. Dr. Eric Busey, welcome to This is for the CV. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We try to have conversations with all, all types of folks and, you know, looking at your research and, and the political climate, we, we wanted to have you on. But before we dig too deep into that part, I just wanted to ask, you know, what's your story in terms of how you found your way to academia? You know, I see that you're from Southern California, me too, right? And so I just wanted to hear that story before we get into it. I didn't know you were from SoCal. What, what city, what part? I grew up in Oceanside. Oh, okay. I was born on Camp Pendleton, so I, I grew up in Oceanside. Oh, there you go. Another another beach guy. So I'm from Redondo yeah. Beach. Um, okay, yeah. Which is also kind of right next to South Torrance. It all kind of blends together, but it's called the South Bay. And um, yeah, I always grew up with the ocean reference. So obviously this is a podcast. You can't see it, but my Zoom background is always a beach. So no matter where I, I have am. I noticed that. <laughs> In every faculty meeting, exactly. Eric's on the beach. Exactly. Never quite leave the beach. Um, Sounds like a good place to be. It is. It's a soothing place to be. And it teaches you some things. And hopefully a sense of balance is one of them. So how did I get started in this? It started with an interest in journalism going all the way back to high school, really. And then reporting for my high school paper, various college papers, editing a few arts journals in college along the way, internships, eventually landing some print newspaper jobs. So I started out as a reporter at a weekly about the lowest place on the totem pole you could possibly be. And then eventually <clears throat> was able to parlay that um, by getting a master's in journalism to uh, a big time daily. And this was out in LA and that paper was called the LA Herald Examiner. Unfortunately, the paper closed. It was, you know, the start of a whole wave of closures. I did go to another paper, uh, the Orange County Register, but it just wasn't the same feeling for me. I really was looking for a specific type of journalism experience, which in my mind had to be, you know, big city, kind of downtown, really mixing it up, not suburban, not, you know, kind of planning commission, but more breaking news and yeah. Mayhem everywhere. <laughs> I remember one night I wrote, I think it was five stories, all different crises going on in the city. So this is an amazing job. And I, and I mentioned that because I would have stayed there had the paper, you know, stayed open. It was my ideal job. I got it in my mid 20s. Like, this is it. I'm set. Like, oh, except there's no more paper. So then I freelanced for a while and you know, that kind of freed me up in a, in a good way because the 92 presidential campaign was forming and I thought what an experience that would be if I could join a campaign. And 
uh, early on, it wasn't quite clear who all was going to get in the race. And suddenly Jerry Brown announces, and mm -hmm. he was the former governor of California. Of course, he became the governor again, the only four time governor of California. And he announces right in LA. So his headquarters are out of Santa Monica, which is like 20 miles from where I was. I said, how can I not do this? So I worked on that for 10 months and rode it all the way from New Hampshire back to California and to New York City, Madison Square Garden for the DNC convention. And so we were kind of the, the Bernie Sanders campaign of that time, really kind of remonstrating for more, much more progressive policies and minimum kind of living wage, we call it. And, you know, universal health care and, you know, more public transportation and subsidies for education, all these themes you hear today, we were already arguing for them like strenuously in 92. And the Clinton people just weren't having it. Um, in fact, you know, the only way Jerry really wanted to fully endorse Clinton was if he embraced a couple of our planks and they just weren't doing it. So that experience was incredible. We actually nominated, put Jerry's name in nomination because he had won several states. And so we're on the floor and we kind of took it over for a half an hour. <laughs> that, was, that was the culmination of 10 months of work. But afterwards, you, you know, you have perspective then on the political side and on the journalistic side. And you realize that journalists are only getting a tiny fraction of what's really going on behind the scenes. And politicians view journalists very suspiciously and are always trying to um, frame or kind of massage the message. And there's this incredible tension, uh, regardless of what side of the ideological spectrum you're on. And I thought, this is, this is really where I want to be. I want to be kind of in the middle of this somehow. And it took somebody at a community college to make the suggestion. And I was teaching some online, well, not online, not back then. Um, I was teaching some writing classes at extension programs. And she said, well, what are you going to do now? You know, you have an interesting background. I said, you know, I'm not quite sure. Maybe go work for a politician, maybe go to DC and do some political writing. She goes, why don't you get a PhD? And I literally said, a PhD in what? And I knew, <laughs> I knew there was PhDs in communication. But at that moment and after the campaign, it wasn't there for me. Like it wasn't accessible. And she suggested it. And I said, oh my God, that's it. That's exactly how I can straddle both worlds and still write about it and have something to say about it. And so a few months later, I started applying. I got accepted to the program at Maryland and I went there because it was close to DC. And that's been my story ever since. I love it. You know, everybody believes, you know, sometimes we talk to students and they just think it's just this straight, just rocket ship mm -hmm. from uh, from high school to it's like there's so many squiggles in this thing. Like uh, you come in the office. Yeah, you see the degree. You have no idea what what <laughs> machinations had to go. We all had to go. Everybody has. It's rare where you find a 27 year old Ph.D. assistant professor like that's that's rarer than. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, one of my scenarios going all the way back to undergrad was, you know, I was an English major. I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool to go straight through and get a PhD and go to Oxford or something like that? Mm -hmm. And I had some friends who were a few years ahead of me and one got into a PhD program in English and he says, it's horrible. You don't want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so how bad could it be? And 
you know, he told me some of the details about the work and the tedium. And I guess for him, it was feeling like a lack of connection with what was going on outside. Mm -hmm. Now, I think the academy's opened up in a lot of ways since then. He was in a very traditional program at, at Oregon and, you know, they weren't really writing and analyzing about things happening now. You know, you could, you know, contemporary was considered, you know, the fifties or sixties. And even then you had to stick to literature and not really much what was going on socially. So I kind of forgot about all that and just went into journalism. Right on. Well, as someone who studied journalism and then was never a journalist today in her life, it's, it's interesting to hear that you studied it, you actually lived it, and then you ended up back at the academy. Yeah, ironically, studying it, but from a research point of view. Mm -hmm. and, you know, this will come up later, but one of the one of the absolute kind of foundations I think we need as a nation, but really any democracy needs is universal journalism education. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we want people to uh, appreciate and adhere to facts, and if we want people to acknowledge that there is a reality that there that we can describe at least pretty accurately. And if we want people to appreciate their other viewpoints, I mean, I don't think anything else does it as good as journalism. Mm -hmm. mm. Amen. Well, let's start general and then we can get a bit more specific. So as someone who teaches a public opinion class, I can't help but notice that, particularly from the political science lens, a great body of research focuses on the lack of civic engagement, the lack of civic knowledge, and how we're kind of lazy and don't know things and don't care. And reading through some of your research last night, I realized that you take a very different approach to understanding public opinion and public participation. And so can you talk us through sort of the, the couple of different lanes that your research is in and your approaches to those topics? Yeah. So, you know, timing sometimes kind of shapes your outlook, right? So, you know, I'll go back to the 92 campaign. What was happening then was that you had uh, early online digital services. Now it was through modems, but already a little bit more than email. It was bulletin boards. It was information spaces. There were real time or at least almost real time chats with the candidates. And I remember going to, there was a service called CompuServe and I think they were based in Ohio. And we did a real time chat with the candidate. And I think it was the first time anything like that had happened electronically. And, you know, having witnessed this, I saw firsthand, like, this is real to people, you know, just because it's mm -hmm. mediated doesn't mean that they're not somehow involved in the campaign or interested in politics. So when you get into graduate school, then, and you deal with the literature and you look at political participation, you realize it's about 30 years behind and that, and that there's this huge schism between media outlooks on it and political science outlooks on it. And for the traditionalists, unless you're showing up in person and doing something, you know, either on the street or at a meeting or in some organized, recognized fashion, you're just not civically engaged. You're, you're doing peripheral activities or things that might lead up to actual participation, but they're going to dismiss it by calling it media engagement. Mm -hmm. And I always took an issue with that. And you know, I thought about it one summer and, and wrote an article. I'd, I'd written about these topics um, throughout graduate school, but finally kind of came together for me in a phrase, and I call it media participation. So not engagement, but participation. Mm 
So it's political involvement. It just happens to be through media. And in this day and age, finally, there's no debate about that. You know, I mean, when we have conventions on Zoom and, mm-hmm. um, you know, hardly anybody in an actual debate auditorium anymore, right. this is how you connect with the political system. Yeah. And sometimes it interfaces with real life. Uh, and the protests demonstrate a lot of that, but also marches for different causes. But they don't work completely separate. They're, they're highly integrated. And so my view is that you have to credit the media side of the equation much more than we when we do and really look at it from an audience or a citizen point of view, as opposed to a system or institutional view that has certain requirements that are a lot are based on, again, timing, kind of 19th century protocols where you have to show up in order to vote and this kind of thing. I'm just waiting for the day where you can finally vote by app and, you know, the numbers will be overwhelming and it'd be a completely different dynamic. You can do everything else in this country, mm-hmm. but vote yeah. online. You can. Indeed. And in some places you can, but very limited and it's, mm-hmm. and it's very local. As early as 2003, you're, you're pointing out like, Hey, there's a, there's a credibility gap here that's coming. And as news is, is burgeoning into these online spheres we're creating maybe a place where the news wants to drive you online. And then once you're driven online, you become, you, you, you succumb to how those messages are disseminated. Right. And so I want to know, like, how do you feel we went from, you know, Edward R. Morrow or, or, or Cronkite and you, you even say like, Hey, there's a there's a significant difference between them and a Brokaw or a Rather or a Jennings, which to me those are like bastions of news people. And then now to a a Rachel Maddow or a Tucker Carlson or, or a Bill O'Reilly, like how do you? Those are huge leaps. How, how do you see that? Yeah, I think we we kind of bungled the transition from broadcast and analog, you know, print media and in other traditional venues to the digital space. First, there was kind of this you know, similar traditional outlook of, oh, that's not going to matter to, oh, I guess we need to start getting a footprint there, but it's still not really going to help our revenue stream to, oh, now it's completely taken over and we're caught flat footed and don't know what to do. And so in parallel, I think a huge problem is not only the industry's response to digital and how they've tried to adapt to that, which is over-commercialized, if you ask me, and based on clicks and and hits and downloads and metrics, as opposed to what an editor thinks is important. The other thing that's happened is a sudden inability to regulate and keep pace with all these digital platforms and ways that society and the economy are now running. And whether it's we have people that are just, you know, of a different generation running the show in Congress, or whether we've got certain political agendas that are blocking reform. I think these are relatively easy problems to fix where we can dial back the opinion in news and dial back all the false claims and conspiracy theories that are just running rampant for no reason other than profit. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was at a seminar once and Brian Lamb, the head of C-SPAN said, if you're in Washington or if you're looking at any big national process and you're wondering what's going on, it doesn't make sense. He says, follow the money. 
And, you know, it really is that easy sometimes. I mean, Alex Jones is basically selling supplements and survival gear. And that's what his stories and his narratives do. They put. You didn't pick up. You didn't pick up any colloidal silver. You didn't. You didn't. You you don't. You don't want any. You don't want a seed garden. I haven't seen the full full range, the full product line. Evidently. Oh, it's it's stunning. I bet it is, and that's what he's doing. But you know, people get caught up in the narrative and the story, and that's a human vulnerability. So, you know, digital media more than any. I've really hacked human tendencies and kind of, you know, built in ways of processing information. I don't want to call them weaknesses, but if you weaponize content, they do turn into weaknesses. And so if everything's negative and fearful and angry, that will scare a lot of people. And it doesn't help national discourse and democracy depends on, you know, forget about your ideas or ideology. It depends on a certain amount of moderation and consensus or willingness to maybe uh see the other point of view and lose once in a while and lose once that's so yeah yeah it can't be about we won and now we impose our will on the rest of y'all forever and all time until you can win that that, that's right that's not governance it's just a model (laughs) of serial oppression yes Mm -hmm. yes and that's what we're under right now and it's just awful um and people you know dismiss you know, we dismiss obvious problems too much now by saying, well, that's just the political system today. Mm -hmm. And, you know, spoils go to the winner and we're a winner take all society. So eh, there's nothing wrong with it. No, there is something wrong with it because it has a really nasty edge and it's turning people against each other. And so I, I didn't think growing up and coming up through kind of an information interest and, you know, and the before kind of being socialized to media politics, really before Reagan, but then becoming a voting age right during the Reagan era, I saw the shift and that's when things started to change. But even then they were still kind of polite and they were still civil. And I thought, okay, well, we can, we can weather the storm. And then we get digital and we get social and we get cable. And that's where we're just not, our system isn't, up to the task of dealing with those challenges. You write this super interesting piece about taking television seriously and the the idea of the soundbite and how in the 60s, you know, we gave politicians over 40 seconds of airtime for their soundbite. And now, you know, it's been reduced to like 7.73 seconds Mm -hmm. into by 2004. And so this discourse we're trying to have how can we have it when we've distilled nuanced problems, nuanced arguments into something for television as opposed to the other way around? Yeah, I mean, that's a challenge because of the format requirements of at least broadcast TV. And again, let's go back to the financial incentive. There's no financial incentive to have even an hour long newscast on broadcast media. It's just mm-hmm. not profitable enough, but we have four or five or six hours of local TV news where they repeat the same stories over and over and over. So locally there's space, but nationally there's not. So the networks have kicked this kind of like, you know, the ABC network did with, with Monday night football, they kicked it to the cable Mm -hmm. companies. And so now ESPN is, 
you know, a primary place to watch big time sports, whereas it used to be the networks and the networks are still players in that, but they've diversified their portfolios and all this business stuff without really thinking too much about society. So how do you have a rational debate or a lengthy and in-depth debate on television, which is people's main source of information still, without resorting to the opinionation and kind of vacuousness of cable news. And I always put quotes around news when you talk about cable, mm-hmm. because it's really opinion and grandstanding. Mm-hmm. And, you know, go back to the 1980s and PBS was doing some really interesting discussions. And they do a lot of good work still, and particularly in the area of documentaries. But there was a, a former CBS guy named Fred Friendly, and he used to convene these, these roundtables. And there would be 20 people of all varying persuasions and ideologies and backgrounds. And it would be, uh, you know, famous attorneys and Harvard professors and, you know, Caltech scientists and civil rights activists. And they're all around the same table having a discussion about a big issue of the moment. And it worked. It wasn't a food fight because Fred Friendly moderated and he was really good at holding that room, driving the discussion forward and getting positive kind of, I see your point of view statements, but I still have a perspective, comments out of everybody at the table. And I thought that's a model for democracy. Mm-hmm. And we need to replicate that. And it needs to be on every network and it needs to be the go-to, I would say genre for figuring out issues as opposed to giving it to the pundits or giving it to a talk, you know, talk radio host or someone on cable news and relying on them for mm-hmm. a narrative that's gonna get squirrely within three minutes. Shepard Smith just came out with like a new show. He left Fox, he, he took a year off and, and his new show is on CNBC and it's just called The News with <laughs> Shepard Smith. Mm-hmm. And, and he's making a gamble there. I'm like, there's no way you can survive in that landscape going up against Aaron Burnett and them with just the news. And you're really just going to report it, Edward R. Murrow style. Like, do you see any oxygen for that on CNBC? I mean, I think that was an interesting announcement. I saw it too. And I think it's got a chance. I like the network. CNBC tends to you know, keep its focus pretty, pretty straightforward on business. Um, you know, they've got some shows that are a little too loose when it comes to stock market predictions. But if he's going to talk about the news on that network, then there's not a built-in slant uh, to the audience. And frankly, that audience probably skews a little centrist or conservative anyway. The question mm-hmm. is, right, can he do a, is it going to be a daily show or a weekly show? It's daily. Yeah. Wow. Can he do a daily show just providing meta commentary about other newscasts? Right. I mean, John Stewart did that and, you know, he provided the model, but this, this isn't going to be comedy. Right. And so the danger mm-hmm. is, do you, do you slip into a over opinionated and very off the cuff interpretation of, of media and politics within your first couple of weeks where suddenly, you know, rather than sounding like Fred Friendly, you're sounding more like Glenn Beck. And then it just Mm. goes off the rails from there. And then you just start to cry a lot. Yeah. 
<laughs> you know, it's like screeching nails on the chalkboard. You know, I think it's got a shot. I would like for him to invite in guests so it's not just all him. I mean, I could see a couple of weeks of that. But, you know, fill that space for thoughtful, engaged, you know, discussion that's going to attract a big audience or a consequential audience that just kind of violates the, the current formulas and assumptions of what TV has to be now. And, you know, invite a guest on who disagrees with you and let them have the space, mm -hmm. you know, providing they're within the realm of facts and, and policy, not just advocating something that's, you know, ridiculous or shameful. So, you know, that's the other side is that I don't think journalists, you know, talking about the, the challenges or threats to like inform discourse, they're not up to the populist threat where these kind of charismatic figures from the right will get on and just start spouting really xenophobic or kind of hateful stuff. And they don't know how to shut it down or redirect it. And they say, well, that's your perspective. I'm just going to let you run with it. It's not really okay. So I think, you know, if Shep can model something new that kind of channels something of the Editor Murrow and Fred Friendly tradition, I think that would be really welcome. But we're going to have to see. Mm -hmm. Given the profit drivers here and the unlikely nature that this will happen, this sort of newer model of discourse, it's unlikely to happen on cable news television anytime in the recent future or the near future, rather. How can we sort of as citizens, people who are engaged in our local communities, emulate some of what you've done with civil counterpoints and take that model into our classrooms, our family conversations, just our daily lives? Because our models, as you've pointed out on national television, don't, don't give us a very good path. Right. I think we need to stay away from partisanship in discussions of politics or issues and look at process and look at ideas and not constantly go to the absolute bottom line of who you're voting for, who you stand for, what are your positions on the three issues, the three litmus test issues that I'm going to judge you by and just get away from that. You know, there's a reason why you shouldn't bring up, you know, politics, religion, and a few other things with people that you don't know very well. But I'm even seeing this with, with people I do know or who I thought I knew. Yeah. Yeah. I talked to you for a while and said, well, tell me what you really think. <laughs> Ironically, one of my friends is named Karen, which has taken on a new meeting lately. Just having a tough year. Yeah. <laughs> she, she's a real Karen. And I'm like... <laughs> wow, I guess you have it all figured out. And she says, well, you're not even providing any facts, any, any counter argument. I don't see why I should even listen to anything you're saying. I'm like, you know, I'm not going to engage with this because you, you're so set in your beliefs. You're not even open to looking at something else. And it's ironic. This, this is someone who rarely travels, you know, beyond Southern California. She's gone to Mexico, but you know, to Europe maybe once. And Europe is just scary and socialist and overly fixated on taxation. And there's just no opportunity to make any money over there. And they're doing it completely wrong. And therefore, that's an oppressive environment. 
wow, okay, well, if you know it from here, then I guess, you know, you're all set. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's a lot to learn just from traveling and, and expanding your, your boundaries and what you see. So when we have conversations, they come from a different point of view. They're not just all parochial and, you know, grounded in our immediate experience. So one study I'm, I'm dying to do, and I just haven't done it yet, is uh, fill the survey and make it national, maybe even international, and ask people, how far have you traveled in your life? And, you know, whether it's uh, for school as an exchange student or whether it was on your own, whether it was for family vacations or even for work, and develop these rings of concentric circles that just kind of radiate outwards, right? And from your your local area, to your region, to your state, to your country, to international, and then how many countries international. And I am just absolutely convinced that the more you've traveled, the more tolerant your views are gonna be. And that doesn't necessarily mean you're automatically on the left. It just means you're gonna understand, appreciate a lot of other points of view, ways of living, ways of doing things, your sense of kind of uh, like social safety net and social engagement is going to be different as well because you'll you will have seen different models even if you just encounter it briefly mm -hmm. you know as a tourist or something like that um and then how long have you spent in other places and i think those two things are highly correlated to the ability to listen and the ability to say and recognize there are other modalities in in politics and in and in approaches to issues uh, and in approaches to discussions so you know what i would love to see as a as a national initiative is something like the peace corps but for everybody where you know you may be involved in in helping with some local project but the main point is just to travel and go see other places we get so isolated where we are and I think that's a contributing factor to in, intense discussions about difference. And I was, I was kind of worried about this, although I, I, I don't know exactly when I got the idea, but you know, with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the US kind of being the remaining superpower, I thought, well, now there's a real danger that instead of constantly having an external threat, we're gonna now look to internal threats mm -hmm. and McCarthyism kind of you know, rearing its head and then otherness becoming a factor. And it just seems that's where we're going. And it's like, well, give us a new threat. Um, we'll do better with that. <laughs> and I forget who asked the question. I was listening to a podcast recently. Oh, it was Ronald Reagan asked this of, of Mikhail Gorbachev in the late 80s. He said, you know, we have our differences. They were trying to negotiate a new nuclear arms deal reduction treaty. And he says, you know, the negotiations haven't been going so well. This is supposedly on a private walk and only their translators are there. He said, let me just pose a question and don't laugh. He says, if there were aliens invading the world, would you come to our defense if they hit the U.S. first? And he says, yes, absolutely. And he says, I would come to the Soviet Union's defense. No questions. We would mm -hmm. just do it. And they said, after that, the negotiations, they had the big breakthrough and they got the treaty and they signed it and that started a reduction of, of nuclear arms. It's amazing, but 
you got to go places. You got to talk to people. So mm-hmm. I think that's really important. I'm struck that even civility has become sort of this dichotomous and bipartisan conversation where we've yeah. gotten rigid in positions that it's either a requirement or it's you know the opposite where you're trying to tell me to ask nicer for basic human rights. And beyond travel, particularly in a pandemic, what are things that maybe on an individual level or even a collective level we can do to shift toward more solution-focused discussions so we don't sort of just keep circling the airport on our sides? Yeah, that's the $64 question. Um, <laughs> I know. Fix society for us, please, Dr. Busey, yeah, <laughs> in right, 30 right. seconds or less. I think, I think you've got to, so, you know, I'm in Lubbock, Texas. I'm from LA. I'm a lifelong Democrat. It doesn't mean I agree with or endorse every policy, but that's my identity. I'm in the middle of a red city in a red region in the reddest part, you know, of what's still a red state. But still, there's some common ground. And I think going back to my earlier comment, you just have to reach people on a personal level and just keep politics at bay for a while. And I think redirect, not necessarily, so arguing on the substance of issues or even personalities or who people are going to vote for really only reinforces someone's outlook. It causes them to kind of treat the question or push as a threat, almost like if you're approached in the store by, you know, a helpful clerk who just comes by once too often, like you don't really need any help. And then one more time and you're out of there, <laughs> even if you intended to buy something originally. So we need to leave certain things alone. Let people just kind of look on their own, synthesize information on their own, not go to that, but try to develop friendships and, and basis of commonality in civil discussion on non-political topics. And so I'm really good at getting along with people <laughs> until and unless they start to just go political. It's not the place to start, even with someone you know. Mm. You wanna stay friends, you know, for instance, my dad has to tell my uncle, you know, love to see you and hang out. You can't talk politics, you can't talk religion because it's just, you're not gonna convert anybody and, and stop thinking that you are. And it's, frankly, it's pretty annoying. We don't wanna be around it. So I think that'd be the, the thing to remember is that once you get, hardened in a view it's not productive even a little bit to try to persuade or engage somebody in that view if you need it for self-reinforcement of your own identity then find like-minded others but that doesn't mean it should be top of mind when you encounter somebody else in the public square there's lots of other things to talk about talk about sports you know talk about you know the pandemic talk about things that where it doesn't automatically become political. And I know this is the problem with the country right now. You could, you could have a discussion about sugar and which color packet you use can become highly political. It's like, oh, you're one of those green people. Like, well, I don't, I don't trust that, that stevia stuff, you know. It's, <laughs> it's got steroids in it or something. I don't know what, but. And I would, yeah, I would really just encourage that because we have to admit our own limitations and assuming that you can really get anywhere by going right to the most sensitive stuff. And politics has become more sensitive than race uh, in this day and age. There's been some interesting studies out of Stanford on that. The big question 
used to be to kind of determine people's sensitivity. You know, how comfortable would you be with your son or daughter marrying somebody of a different race? Now it's marrying somebody of the other party. And that's just Mm. astonishing. And it's sad. So we need to, instead of foregrounding politics, we need to background politics. And we need to focus on things that everybody can agree on that are going to move the society forward, for instance. I mean, this gets politicized, but what about public infrastructure? And what about renewing things that are visible that, that need obvious attention? Like how can a pothole be political? You know, that, I mean, that level. And yet we've, we turn every single debate about trying to do anything to land or to, you know, cities or to distressed areas. We turn that into a big political discussion. And I don't think we can really handle it. And it's, and it's not good. It, what it shows you is it just bifurcates society and, and discussions. And exhausts us. Right, yeah. No. So, so then you withdraw, which is sensible and rational. And then you retreat into only talking to people with like-minded views or that you consider safe. So I guess I'm arguing for a safer public sphere. But in terms of information, in terms of topics, in terms of how you're going to engage with someone, you know, you either know or you don't know that well. And I just want to mention one other thing, which I had kind of forgotten about, but was brought up recently by Dean at Pepperdine, who kind of made this observation, like, why are we so polarized and brittle at this point? And why are people so focused on politics? And it goes back to uh, Putnam's work on bowling alone and kind of the mm-hmm. decline of social activities. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't thought about that in in this regard in terms of polarization. But you know, we still have Lions and Rotary Club and all kinds of civic groups and volunteer groups. And there's a lot of that in in Lubbock, which is great to see maybe more than in some places. But there's still a a retreat away from active involvement uh, in groups and towards uh, individual engagement with media mm. kind of obsessively now, right? Or we have our telephones, our, our cell phones are our entertainment devices. And so with the decline of that and with the folks a, a fixation on media and a certain tendency of an older demographic to veer towards news and the rise of these cable quote news networks that really just dish opinion then suddenly you have an over-reliance on this outpost of media that all it does in the end is get you riled up. It doesn't make you more effective. It doesn't earn you any friends. It doesn't you know, contribute back to your local community. It just gets you obsessed with what's going on every single second of the day. So I think all that's really unhealthy. And, and I would do away with the cable news networks if, if I could do that. And I would limit their so-called news programming. And I would regulate them all. Uh, I think this is another easy solution is to regulate all electronic media, whether it's online or an app or calls itself social media or is cable uh, news delivered to the same standard of broadcast television. And I think that single move would improve the situation dramatically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I won't be able to implement any of those ideas. (laughs) who knows there might be i i can't imagine you know when when the technology 
I graduated from high school in 99 and I didn't see a cell phone on campus until my senior year of high school and a, and a sophomore had it. And we looked at him like he was had a hole in his head. Like, <laughs> what do you need that for? Like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And so I can only imagine what the, the people who had children who grew up around that type of technology, like the, just like my parents didn't know what Mortal Kombat was. So I got it for Christmas and I'm ripping people's heads out in the, in the back room. You know, these, these parents, they don't know, they don't know that they're putting a, a, a supercomputer in their 12 year old's pocket and they can type anything. And I do mean anything into Google or Reddit and it will show up, but we do. And so by the time our kids are out there in the world, like my kid, my kids aren't going to have cell phones. My, my nephew got his first cell phone when he was 17 and he's happy to get it. Cause it's just like, yeah, you're not, it's not, it's just not happening. And so you, you hit on a key idea here. You, you talk about visual primacy and you say, Hey, listen guys, the visuals supersede the words. Even if the words counteract the visuals, if the visuals are strong enough, emotional enough, passionate enough, they'll do away with your words. What do you make of what's going on in our society with that frame? Yeah, I mean, it's there's some positive developments and there's some negative, almost you know, virulent elements that have figured out how to use that to mm. advantage political advantage. So the positive side is that we're finally recognizing images as a valid source of information. And sometimes it's technical and scientific. What do I mean by that? Well, look at a, look at a radar image of an incoming storm or a hurricane. And there's no question that we know what that means. And we treat that, you know, the nightly weathercast as real information when you know, the, the weather person showing us the green screen, like that's real. Now translate that into the way people gesture or communicate or emphasize certain points, or if they seem sincere, credible, that's social information as well. it's a different kind uh, than scientific information. So even if we're hearing from people and authorities less, we're seeing them. So, you know, it's unfortunate that the Trump administration is, you know, taking such a odd approach to the virus. And now you don't see Anthony Fauci out there much. But I think we should, because he's a reassuring, calming presence. He doesn't act emotional. He delivers facts. He also is very reassuring. And that kind of person, I think, needs to be out there in the middle of kind of a moment that's crisis ridden. Instead, we get the visual kind of, you know, I don't know, I'm going to call it circus of the kind of the populist approach to managing, which is just all over the map and really more directed towards maintaining attention as opposed to conveying anything truly socially useful. Mm -hmm. So reassurance is useful. That's a constructive posture and feeling. Consensus, empathy, these are things I think people could benefit from. When you're just showing repeatedly over and over things like anger, confusion, you know, duplicity, changing your mind, indecision, uncertainty, or a false sense of confidence, and it varies from moment to moment, you're into almost an Orwellian style of visual politics where 
the story in the enemy changes from day to day and there's no way to keep track of it. So the only outcome from all that is the one that propaganda seeks, which is confusion. And confusion is not a constructive posture towards the world or your individual life, but it's a political strategy that can keep people off balance. So you don't know what's real, what's true, and who else is even out there. So you just continue to endorse the people that seem to be in charge mm. um, mm -hmm. because they have the, the current, you know, they have the control of the country now. So both of these things are, you know, kind of working in dynamic interplay. And I think from a media point of view, they, they just haven't in, in the era of Trump and, and populists around the world to turn the cameras off and to turn the microphones off and to just not pay that much attention to them. We're finally in, you know, year four of, of Trump's presidency, we're starting to realize that his tweets aren't really news and that he's probably going to change his mind. And they're really just designed as provocations to attract attention. And so isn't that the definition of being used if you're a reporter? Is it just report on something that isn't even true or sincere and to amplify, you know, a, a salesman's kind of story, which is all it is. I mean, that's the way I was taught journalism. You ignore that stuff. That's why you have an editorial process. So, you know, we're in this moment of visuals working for good and for harm. But the problem is, as Anthony, you point out, the, the negative is going to overwhelm and the negative and the visual is going to overwhelm the things that are more positive and that be, might be more informationally or, or neutrally based. So I think there's some media responsibility here. This goes back to regulation that if it's not newsworthy and it's just designed for attention. That has to be a new criterion of whether you co cover something. I mean, newsworthiness is supposedly a criterion, but not everything the president says or does or mentions off, off the cuff should be reported as news. And we've done that for too long. So we've kind of got ourselves in this bind as well because it's been way too easy to play the media system just by virtue of your position. And, that, and that's all it is. So, you know, I liken it to the old position on terrorism, which is you don't give them the oxygen of publicity because that's what they want. So something terrible happens. Yeah, you might report on it, but you don't show how dramatically harmful or grotesque it is you know and that goes for online that goes for broadcast you report the facts but you don't overdo it and, and in some cases you don't even mention the name of the person who's responsible because that's what they want they want to see their name in lights mm -hmm. and i can't believe we've forgotten this principle i mean it was the decision rule in the 70s and going into the 80s and you look at like just for instance the troubles in ireland and they wouldn't even mention the name of the head of the IRA. Just was something you didn't do. And, and now we're, we've completely flipped all that. And we've got people who kind of uh, play the system and come up first as outsiders and then take the reign as insiders. And we still give them this attention that most of their comments and antics don't deserve. And that's been really disappointing for me to see. Does that sort of follow your findings from your 2012 study on visual attention? 
or is it something different? Is it just that our expectations are different for Trump than they were for candidates in 2012? Hmm. I think our expectations are still the same. We want we want people who we want to see leaders who put forth a more professional kind of competent look. But we also cue off of other things. So there's more than just a an expectation set of of competence and trustworthiness. We also look for dominance. You know, Trump's genius in, in populists around the world, if, if you want to call it a form of genius, is to realize that if they just perform dominance better than their opponent performs competence, mm. that they'll probably overwhelm the audience in terms of attention. And they'll make the other person look small. And that even if they have ideas, they're just kind of a, you know, a brainy or a kind of a talkative do-gooder, but can they really get the job done? And so I think that's what some of my research on using focus groups, but also things like um, dial tests and uh, some eye tracking has noticed that people are veer towards, you know, visual transgressions and that they also look for things that are signs of, you know, competitive advantage. And there's a certain kind of inherent trust in that. Oh, it looks like somebody who could stand up for me or stand up for the country or be a good leader against adversaries. The problem is that it's an unreliable cue when all you see is the kind of domestic take on it in television in all these constructed kind of formats like debates or mm-hmm. you know one-on-one sit-down interviews or ads that are highly crafted and constructed. So it gives the impression of dominance, but a person's really not capable of it when they get on the international stage. So Trump looks like a puppy dog when he gets around a North Korean leader or he gets around Putin or he gets around even some of his Western counterparts who don't want anything to do with him. That to me is a more realistic test. So, you know, you talk about an information bubble, the bubble we've constructed is is the one also that makes leadership decisions look like they can all be decided you know, by kind of these artificial factors. And I think you have to put potential leaders to a real test. I wish there was some way of doing this of, you know, a real crisis situation. A friend of mine even, you know, has a suggestion for, you know, not quite turning a presidential campaign into a reality show, but give candidates a challenge that they have to address and see how they do. And so, you know, what kind of resources do they bring to bear interpersonally, um, you know, in terms of their ingenuity and in terms of kind of motivating and rallying people. And so it goes back to Trump's rise through The Apprentice. Well, all that had to be reshot almost every show, according to people who worked on it, that because he would just make an arbitrary decision about who to fire. None of it was rational. And he would usually fire the wrong person (laughs) And then they had to go back and reshoot everything to make it look like the person who got fired uh, really did mess up. But if you had cameras on trend towards social media and kind of revealing your, your private life, but if you had cameras on candidates during a challenge and they didn't get to edit it, that might show us a different picture of who these people are. I love that idea.
even just hypothetically, if you were given a case and made to respond with what you, you know, do and what your strategy would be, because it would break away from the rigid political party positions on certain issues. Right. We saw it. We saw a version of it in 08 with, you know, the financial crisis and McCain is like, Mm -hmm. we need to stop. We need to suspend campaigning. And Obama's like, nah, we can we can do this all at the same time. Let's go back to Washington. He's in there cool as a cucumber talking to the people. McCain's cursing people because, that you know, that's that's just his temperament. And it was like, yeah, McCain wasn't so good in those. He wasn't so hot in those meetings. That's right. Obama and, really showed us something. <laughs> and those and those key events really can turn elections. And Obama had two of them right before both of his elections. One was the economic crisis and right. His instincts were on the money. And that contrast made the decision so much easier for voters. You know, you take all the propaganda that McCain was spewing and signals he was giving and his, you know, unwillingness to even shake Obama's hand on the last debate. I mean, just awful stuff. And then you put those guys out of a propaganda context and into a real life situation and the obvious leader emerged. And, you know, this is such a problem in, in American journalism too, is we ignore real political effectiveness because it's so quiet and it keeps things yeah. coming along mm-hmm. without any yeah. fanfare. And Obama- so, Which is what we need. Right, yeah. I don't want to think about politics every day. Yeah, no, I, I, <laughs> but I have to now. No, I know. And I teach the stuff, but I don't want to think about it every day. Same. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would love for it to just run in the background. I would love for it to just, you know, exactly. but it's like, no, everybody's on a high alert every yep. day. Yep. And the second thing that Obama benefited from was a hurricane. I think it was Sandy that hit New Jersey and flooded large parts of it. And again, his instincts were spot on. This happened a couple of weeks before the election. And he goes out immediately, um, surveys the situation, authorizes all this emergency aid, meets with governors like Chris Christie, wins them over so much that Christie's out there praising him to the heavens. And the Republicans are aghast because they're like, no, we're in the middle of election. but that was more important than politics and so the problem today is we think politics is more important than life and it's not Mm. so i i think there's got to be a a more realistic way of deciding who leaders are going to be not to mention they should have some political experience and have actually won an election somewhere i mean we have more stringent rules for student council president than actual president. We sure do. <laughs> Which students are apt to point out. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's true. I mean, it's, I don't know why the founders left that so open, you know? Yeah, great. You want as many people as possible to have the option to run, but when you get down to actually selecting a candidate, it can't just be the best flim fam artist in the room well on that right <laughs> dr Busey, what is the quote of the week i'm going to pull from sports actually um, as opposed to politics because i think you know we've just had like we've been talking about an oversaturation of political discussion and insights and all these other things so 
my hometown team of the LA Lakers just won the NBA championship in the bubble and LeBron got his fourth champion ring and which is awesome. And he's this inspiring, just towering figure who I think is doing amazing things for society. And I, and I hope after his playing days are over, he really continues to embrace public life. Like I see he's now involved in voting engagement with Michelle Obama. I think it's awesome. But the quote comes from Tom Brady, who longtime quarterback, six-time Super Bowl champion, who's now playing for the Tampa Buccaneers. Well, Brady's in his 40s. And I don't know if you guys caught it or watched football, but the other week he thought he had a fourth down situation and he had one more play, but he had already just ran the fourth down play and had to give the ball over to the other team. This is towards the end of the game. So he looks at the coach and he holds up his fingers and it's four thinking he's on fourth down, let him go. And like, no, bro, you've got to give up the ball. You just played fourth down. <laughs> and like, oh no, maybe it's not so good to let quarterbacks play into the forties. So Brady <laughs> makes fun of this. He takes LeBron's fourth championship and his four, fourth down moment and says on Twitter, congrats to my brother at King James. I'm winning his fourth championship. Not bad for a washed up old guy. And, and then he takes the picture of himself that went viral on social media where he's standing in his Tampa Bay Buccaneers uniform holding up four fingers and he photoshops LeBron's head onto it. So it's uh. LeBron with four fingers in Brady's Tampa Bay uniform, smiling from ear to ear as if he just got his fourth championship. And the commentary has just been amazing. And so that's what we need, I think, in America. What does it show? It shows that you recognize somebody else's achievement when they do well. You make fun of yourself so you have a little bit of humility. You take things and you admit that you were wrong and you don't condemn people for, for making fun of you. You make fun of yourself and then you move mm -hmm. on. You win friends and adherence that way. And you know you show your relevance and, and use a digital platform in a positive way, not in a negative. So I thought that was actually pretty good, pretty good quote. I was thinking about political ones. I thought, nope, nope, I think. Brilliant reflections from a Twitter meme. So thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. This has been This Is For The CV. Thanks for listening, Mom. This Is For The CV is a Larson and Lestrat production. Editing done by Rebecca Larson. Music performed by Issa Black. Thanks, man.